Hi everyone, I'm Michael Caloria and you're listening to The Gadget Lab, a podcast about the gadgets, apps, and services that you need to know about and how they impact your lives. I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Ariel Pardes. Hello! Lauren Good is off this week, but sitting in her chair is our good friend, Wired Zone, Peter Rubin. Hi guys. Hi Peter. Peter. Lauren's chair, thankfully, is still nice and warm. (laughs) Oh, ooh, harsh. Um, well, she's on she's on vacation, so she'll be back next week. So don't get used to it. Oh, I won't. <laughs> I know what I'm up against. Um, so we are going to have you talk a little bit about uh, the PlayStation stuff that you wrote about this week. Very big story on Wired. Uh, we'll get to that in a minute, I'm sure. And then later on the episode, we'll be welcoming Nathan Proctor onto the show. Nathan is the national director of the Right to Repair campaign for U.S. PERG an advocacy organization that pushes for legislation that preserves your right to fix, alter, or upgrade your personal tech gadgets, like your phone, your laptop, your AirPods, your Tesla, your tractor. The tractor thing is real. Uh, Mike and Lauren interviewed Nathan earlier this week, and we will play you that interview right after we go through some of this week's news. Mike, you can start. Well, we have to talk about the Samsung Galaxy Fold. The new folding smartphone with a price tag of nearly $2,000 is not available to the general public just yet, but Samsung this week sent out review units to the press. So the tech reporters at all the different outlets started using the phone so they could write about it, and then the devices started breaking. I'm so disappointed that we have yet to see a headline that just says review the Samsung failed. What you mean like fold? Oh, oh. Just calling it oh, the Samsung failed. That was a pun. It was, but it's <laughs> Peter is an aspiring champion punner, but as you may, you may notice, are you a champion? Retired. Oh, Retired well. punner. Uh, but you still have the belt hanging on your wall. Yes, I do. Um, uh, anyway, uh, it, 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 the the photos the the thing was failing kind of publicly because there were people who had the Samsung Galaxy Fold who were posting photographs of the device having failed to their Twitter feeds. Uh, a handful of journalists like Steve Kovach at NBC, uh, CNBC, excuse me, Dieter Bone from The Verge, Mark Gurman at Bloomberg, our good friend Marquez Brownlee, they all put out photos of their fold review units with the interior display, the the part that folds, the book part partially or fully broken. Yeah, my favorite one was actually um, Marquez Brownlee's tweet, which wasn't about the hinge mechanism, but it, he had uh, he had peeled off what he thought was a screen protector, yeah. which it turns out was not a screen protector and was in fact just the screen. Yeah. Uh, and so his review unit just immediately broke and he posted a photo of this sort of. He, he yeah. was, and he wasn't the only person who did that peel off move, I don't think. Right. That's right. That's right. So the peel off move thing is interesting because so the phone, obviously it folds. So it doesn't have glass. You can't make glass thin enough and strong enough to fold in the type of radius that they that they need in order to make a device like this. So the screen, unlike your own phone that you're using now, is a polymer. It's like a very, very smooth plastic. Um, it's also pretty delicate because it has to be super flexible. So what companies that are making folding devices do is they put this thin film on top of it. And it does like, it looks like it might be a sticker. I mean, it's not a sticker. And if you started to peel it, you would probably realize that it's not a sticker, but it, for people who get devices that have stickers on them and they get great joy from peeling them off and particularly like the the type of anal person who is most likely to be a tech reporter uh, would want to peel this thing off. 
you know, you're basically pulling off the protective barrier that keeps you, your fingernails from scratching the screen or your keys from scratching the screen. That's what it's there for. So it is a screen protector, but it's also not one that is ever meant to be removed. And it is part of the screen. So when you peel it, you break the screen. And also, to be fair, we saw Lauren Good's review unit, yes. and it did not look like it was meant to be removed. Right. Like, some people claimed that there was, like, enough of a ragged edge that it looked like you were supposed to kind of tease it up. But yeah, or like a bubble. Somebody yeah. talked about there being a bubble under it, like a regular screen protector. Well, you know, so Samsung put out a statement shortly after this started happening on Wednesday. And they said, the company said that, um, you know, this is part of the screen. It is not supposed to be removed. We are investigating the causes, blah, blah, blah. But they basically pointed at the screen protector, which there's a problem, which is that not everybody who posted a photo of a broken phone had peeled back the screen protector. Some of them were just opening it and closing it and the screen went dead. So... We're still not sure exactly whether or not this is something that is going to be repeatable, whether it's an easy fix for Samsung, how this is going to affect reviews. I imagine it's going to affect, affect them negatively. Uh, and also whether or not the phone is still going to be shipped to consumers. Yeah, you have to imagine that it's affecting Samsung's pre-orders, which have mm -hmm. already begun. Mm -hmm. um, this is a company that's trying to convince you to cough up almost $2,000 for a phone that has never really existed in this way, in this form. So you're sort of signing up to be like a beta tester, spend a lot of money doing it, and potentially break your phone in the first hour because it doesn't look and feel like what you're used to. That, that's a huge risk. And yeah. I would imagine that people who have pre-ordered or were thinking about pre-ordering or who have been excited about this device are, are maybe getting cold feet now. Yeah. And even if they get the messaging out that this is not a screen protector, there's other problems with this with the phone. Like Dieter uh, Bone at The Verge, it, it seemed like a little piece of something came loose and kind of poked up at the screen and... Uh, it, I don't know. It feels like the definition, this phone, of a weird flex that is not okay. <laughs> wow. Peter, I'm so happy you're here with us today. Oh, my goodness. Well, in other news of things breaking, um, a Lyft had to put the brakes on its e-bike program this week. Oh, boy. The ride-hailing company had begun trafficking in e-bikes sometime last year after it acquired the startup Motivate, which is uh, actually the largest bike share operator. Um, those bikes were in New York, they were in DC, they were here in the Bay Area, there was an expansion plan to Chicago in the works. Um, but then on Sunday, very suddenly, Lyft announced that it was going to remove all 3,000 of its electric bikes um, after a series of reports from riders who were getting really injured on them. One one guy in particular claimed he had broken his hip after the front brakes of his e-bike had stopped working. Uh, we all bike, so I think we can all imagine how terrifying uh, and unpleasant that must have been. Um, it's of course worth pointing out that Lyft is only removing the electric bicycles. It also has a bunch of good old fashioned pedal bikes in its bike share program, um, and those are still available. But it's a huge bummer for the bike share world um, to see this sort of mini recall of, of the mm -hmm. e-bikes. Um, and it's it's a bummer for, for Lyft and other bike share operators as well, because studies have shown that people are more likely to get a bike share if it's an e-bike. Um, people go longer distances on these bikes if you have the pedal assist. So these sort of early problems with them are, are not just sort of a hiccup for, for Lyft, but for the whole bike share community at large. Mm -hmm. 
It's going to affect uh, ridership. I almost said readership. It's going to affect ridership. Well, what share did Lyft have? I mean, there are so many bike share companies at this point, even ones that have an mm-hmm. e-bike contingent to their fleet. So I, I'm just curious how Lyft kind of stacked up against everybody else as far as the pre- the predominance of the bikes. Well, the thing the thing about Motivate, the company that was operating the these bikes, is that they are the ones who have worked with cities to develop infrastructure for their services right so they build a network they have pods with all the docks in them and you ride a bike to the dock and you put it in the dock so this is docked e-bike so these are the ones that are like built into the city's infrastructure there's one every few blocks they run uh close to mass transit so like here in san francisco they're close to bart they're close to the museums they're close to the main bus lines and they're in the neighborhoods that the city knows are the ones that could benefit the most from having docks there. So this is like, you know, the network in San Francisco, as opposed to the ones that are just parked on the sidewalks. Like the, uh, here it's the um, the Uber bikes. What are they called? Jump bikes. Jump bikes. There's Thank also you. line Lime, bikes in Lime other cities. Line bikes, yeah. yeah. Uh, so apparently what was happening is that on the e-bikes, um, they have uh, the, the brake levers. I think it's a disc brake system on the front. And if you were riding very quickly, and you are a lighter than average person and you pull on the brake lever very hard, the brakes stop the bike so suddenly that you go over the handlebars. So the brakes are too good. Wait, so that's, yeah, totally functional. <laughs> yeah, but that's the thing. It's like, it's not supposed to do that. And I want to be really careful here that like we don't blame the victims, the people who got hurt in this point, because how are they supposed to know that you don't, you, you know, don't just grab a fistful of front brake? Yeah. I mean... Yeah. Yeah. However, this so this is a problem that is um, preventable because there are things called power modulators that you can put on the brake that if somebody does slam on the brakes and the bike is going a certain speed, it'll sort of dose out the um, the braking force in a way that will not send the person over the handlebars. And the these bike bikes, version of ABS. Exactly. Yeah. These bikes did not have those on them. So it's kind of like if they did, would these things have been preventable? And yeah, I mean, I think it sort of hints at this larger trend within the bike share, scooter share, ride share world, which is that um, getting these things into cities and getting people onto them is one hurdle. But then sort of dealing with all the safety and liability issues is this massive headache. Um, most of these bike share and scooter share programs don't include helmets, for example. Mm-hmm. So it's like, what happens if you hit a crack in the sidewalk and go flying? Like, mm-hmm. who's who's at fault there? And mm-hmm. I think this is just one sort of small example of how Lyft and other companies are, are having to grapple with this yeah. um, for something that might be user error, mm-hmm. but still falls on them to fix. Yes. I mean, it just, it really feels like it demands a tiered system, right? People who own an e-bike are going to know this about brakes. People who just get regular rideshare bikes aren't necessarily going to be going fast enough, or at least not as easily, yeah. at when grabbing a fistful of front brake, you're going to go OTB over yeah. the bars. Yeah. It's when you <laughs> yeah. get inexperienced e-bike riders and the ease to go 20 to 25 without thinking about it, yes. where you don't know that stopping short is going to land you in front of your bike, but not on your bike. 
that's yeah. tough. And also, I want to be clear that like we're we're only going on um, other publications reporting with with that explanation for what happened because there were some places that it, that found people who saw it or found people who worked there and who would talk about it off um, off the record or on the record, but not for attribution um, about what the problem was. So that's you know what is we are assuming is the problem. It could also just be that you know the brakes completely failed and the person totally knew what they were doing. Right. But sure. uh, that's the explanation that's out there now. So that's the one that we have to talk about. Well, let's talk about something happier. <laughs> Maybe something not broken. Peter, what have you got for us? Something not yet broken. Uh, was that a was that a throw for for Sony talk? Sony PlayStation. PlayStation. Every time she does this, I am so entertained. <laughs> this podcast is not the first time that Ariel has done this to me. I've been doing uh, it all day. All day and much of the week, in fact. Um, okay, so on Tuesday, um, Sony took just a little bit of the veil of secrecy off their next generation console plans. Um, while this console does not have an official name yet, uh, I think a lot of people are assuming it will be known as the PlayStation 5. I asked them this, they said, we can't confirm any names, so I held myself back from calling it that. I may not be able to hold myself back from calling it that right now. It's just so much easier to say PS5 than Sony's next generation console. But they claim that's how they have been uh, referring to it internally, so next gen console it is. Anyway, uh, now we know a little bit about it when before we just had scuttlebutt and hearsay. All right, so what did you find out? What I found out was that uh, they see this as a significant improvement over the current generation, which of course uh, is going to be what companies say, but specifically that is an interesting thing now because the generation that we are coming to the end of, the Xbox One and PlayStation 4 generation, was unique in that the and Nintendo kind of exists off to the side. They're kind of between generations. They're either a half generation behind or a half generation ahead, depending on how you think about it, probably behind with the kind of horsepower of the internals that they deal with. But with Sony and Microsoft, this current generation was the first one that saw a mid-cycle refresh. They both released more powerful versions of that console. So the Xbox One, Microsoft then came out with the Xbox One X, and there is a PlayStation 4 Pro. Both of those came out, I think, in the 2016-17 uh, range. So we have seen the capability of this generation take a pronounced bump. Um, but as Mark Cerny, who is the kind of lead systems architect for Sony, said, there's a difference between changing the gameplay experience that you have on a given game and changing the kind of nature of what you, what you can do with a game altogether. So the mid-cycle refresh was an instance of the former, uh, but for something to really be a generational shift, he says really you need to be have, have much more kind of palpable. Quantum leap is maybe a little too much, um, but this is a significant change for a few different reasons, uh, one of which obviously is going to be the CPU-GPU stuff. So they are going with um, uh, a custom chip that is based uh, from AMD that's based on the Ryzen line, mm -hmm. specifically the third generation Ryzen line, which is known as the Zen 2 architecture. Um, 
uh, or microarchitecture, I guess would be a better way to say it. I'm not sure. Uh, and the GPU, uh, which is from AMD's Navi family, uh, specifically a custom variant of the Navi family that supports ray tracing. Now, this is one of the big things that consoles have not yet been able to do. Ray, ray tracing sounds cool. What is it? I ray have no oh, idea. Great question. <laughs> so ray tracing is very cool, uh, and it's something that we have seen a lot in Hollywood and is just kind of bringing, like, get, has been getting into PCs. Ray tracing is the, the uh, a graphics rendering technique in which you, you can simulate the way light interacts and moves by tracing it essentially as a, the path of a pixel through an environment. And so what that means is reflections become much more realistic and lifelike because through ray tracing, you can take a source of light and then see exactly where it's gonna go, what it's gonna bounce off, what direction it's gonna move in, what it's gonna hit there. So for things like reflection and refraction being how objects look through liquid or through glass, ray tracing is gonna be kind of phenomenal for that. So it's a very, it, uh, compute intensive technique. And so while you could do everything with ray tracing and get away from rendering your scene in triangles kind of at all, that's gonna slow things down. And so how developers use this capability is going to be along a continuum. You might use it for just a couple things. Mm -hmm. uh, you might, you, you probably won't use it for everything because it's so demanding. But uh, the way Mark Cerny talked about it is obviously there's that kind of visual side to it. Uh, but then also you can use ray tracing not just for what light does, but for what sound does. Uh, and for kind of how you might be detected and how the sounds you make might let AI characters notice you for stealth games or things like that. Mm. So what that means for gaming is a story, or, or is a th we don't know the extent of that yet. We do know that um, Epic Games' Unreal Engine, which is one of the giant video game engines, made a big deal at this past Game Developers Conference about the way that they are working with ray tracing and what it allows developers to do. So the capability of, of having that in a console rather than just kind of super high-end PC rig and being able to take advantage of what kind of these engine and middleware companies are able to let you do with it it's a lot of we don't know, but it does feel like it's going to be a visually very impressive thing. Uh, and then the third thing that is potentially a very big deal uh, about the next generation console from Sony <laughs> uh, is another thing that is being used, again, somewhat in PCs is solid state disks. Now, obviously... This is something that's been in our laptops for a decade. This is something that we're very used to having, call them flash drives or whatever. But when it turns out that the reason you have them in PC gaming is to cut down on load times. Um, load times or loading screens are there because a video game is gathering the data from the hard drive. And if you're doing that on a spinning platter drive, it's gonna take a lot longer than if you're doing it. The, just the read speeds are much faster with a solid state drive. So. What Sony claims that it's doing is delivering a solid state drive, again, kind of a custom deal. Um, they wouldn't say who the original vendor is, though Samsung uh, is makes, I think, what is currently the fastest 
PC solid state drive that comes in at a reasonable price. There's an incredibly expensive one from another company that's like 1200 bucks, but Samsung is delivering it for like the two to $300 range. So Sony wouldn't tell me who makes the disc, but they did say, and Mark Cerny in particular said, that they built a software stack on top of it that where the, um, the input output is faster than anything you can get in a PC. And he demonstrated that by showing me uh, kind of a place in a AAA game where you might see these loading screens come up. Because it's not just at the beginning of a game. It's when you open a door and uh, you get to a new part of the map and the, and the game needs to load all that data. And it happens a lot in open world games during fast travel when you teleport essentially from one location on a map to another. So he did that using the game Spider-Man, which came out last year. And he did it on a PS4 and it took about 15 seconds, and then he did it using uh, a dev kit of the next-gen console, and it took a little under one second. Wow. Um, and so that is a big deal, and it's also a big deal because it allows you to move through a game's world a lot faster. And using Spider-Man again, he can web-sling through New York. Like, that is the great joy of that game, right? It's just web-slinging through the skyscraper canyons of Midtown. But the speed which with, with which he can do that is capped because you are pulling that data off the drive again to render the next kind of few blocks right. and yeah. as the rest of the uh, cityscape comes into focus. Doing it on the dev kit of the next-gen console, it's like you're on a jet going through Midtown. It's so fast because it's able to pull that data so quickly, and it's crystal clear. Wow. Um, so what that, again, what that unlocks for game experiences you can imagine some things, but you also don't know what devs are going to do with it. So it's very much a kind of a time of experimentation. And so dev developers have been working with the dev kit and more and more are going out, which is kind of why Sony is talking about it now. I see. So Sony has been seeding the new hardware with the people who make the games that everybody who buys this thing is also going to want. That's exactly right. And it stands to reason that kind of the early companies working with this would be Bethesda, who makes um, Elder Scrolls and mm. uh, and Skyrim. Their next game is rumored to be a next-generation title, and they have always worked very closely with Sony. In fact, Mark Cerny said that the head of Bethesda, a guy named Todd Howard, was one of the first people who said, we want a solid state drive next time. So yeah. I'm sure they're working with it. Uh, and so a lot of the companies, not just Sony-owned studios, but trusted partners that they work with are, are almost surely working with it already. So what about VR? Because one of the best things about the last PlayStation was the PSVR. You could plug into it and play VR games with a console. Very cool. So did you get any sort of inkling as to what the tie-in is going to be with this new one? Very cool. And also, maybe the biggest commercial success of the first generation of VR. They, yeah. and they've sold, I think, 4 million units to date. And it's a little less powered than the Oculus Rift and the HTC Vive. Mm -hmm. But it's a compelling, it's a really quality living room VR gaming experience. Mm -hmm. So as a very quick uh, preface... The other thing that the next-gen console is going to do is deliver 3D audio. And when Mark Cerny was describing the 3D audio, he said it's going to have presence. You're really going to feel like you're in the game, and it's going to have locality. You're really going to know where a sound is coming from, above you, behind you, whatever it is. And I said, it's funny that you use the word presence because that is the word for VR, right? Mm -hmm. Presence is the idea that you're really existing in this virtual environment. So, so I said, you know, what's up? 
is there going to be a sequel? Like, what is the deal with this next-gen console supporting PSVR? And is there going to be a sequel to a next-generation PSVR? And he said, uh, I, we're not ready to talk about our future VR plans, but I can tell you that the next-gen console will support PSVR, which made PSVR people incredibly happy. Like, this turned into one of those kind of secondary stories that kind of spawned from this piece that we ran uh, was that the VR world is very happy about this, that clearly Sony is committed. And you have to be committed to kind of build that support into the console. Unless you're going to keep pushing it forward, why would you do that? Mm-hmm. One thing that everybody wants to know, um, which I'm sure is something that you asked, is uh, how much is this thing going to cost and when is it showing up? Oh, these are good questions. Uh, I don't know the answer to either of those. Um, I glossed the price thing a little bit in the original piece by saying that they're not ready to talk about it. Mm -hmm. But then I realized that Cerny's answer to my question might be interesting to some people. So actually, I put that on Twitter after the fact. Um, Just a little bit of transcript from the interview. Historically, PlayStations have come in in some kind of a range of launch pricing. Famously, the PS3 came in very expensive uh, and was roundly booed uh, uh, or belittled because of it. So I said, basically, is this next-gen console going to come in in this general range of pricing? And he said, we're confident that it is going to come in at a price that, I'm not going to remember exactly how he said it, it's going to come in at a price that will be attractive to people in light of its advanced feature set. Uh, Which, of course... So it will be expensive. I think it will be on the expensive side of what people are now conditioned to pay for a console. Meaning it's not going to be $299 like a Nintendo Switch or like the Xbox One S, uh, which is kind of their somewhat streamlined version of the Xbox One. But I don't think you're looking at $699. Right. $499 or $599. I think that range is where you're looking. Maybe they throw in a free PSVR, too. <laughs> uh, there's a second part to that question. Oh, when, when? we're going to find out more. Christmas? Well, they said not 2019, as far as release goes. Sure. When we're going to find out more, I think we will find out more progressively yeah. throughout 2019. They are Sony is not going to do a keynote at E3 in June, which is for the first time they have not done this. And there's been a lot of speculation. Why? Why? Won't you be at E3? And their answer was, well, we don't want to be there if we don't have a ton of great new games to show our fans. But really, it's this generation is coming to a close, and you don't want to show titles that are obviously kind of of end-of-life titles, but you also don't want to give away too much about what the new generation will bring, even though a lot of titles will be available for both platforms during that transition period. So they're not going to be at E3, but it stands to reason that we are going to find out more, probably given the way that they talked about things with me, a bit at a time. Like, this is clearly their kind of PR campaign this year, is to do bits. So you know, they said we're going to talk more about user services when the time is right and the controller and games. And so I am sure that we will see three or four of that type of story throughout 2019. Right. So is this like the dentist where at the end of this interview, did you um, set up your next appointment to see them like in a few months? I did not set up a next appointment to see them in a few months. They said, what do you want to know about? And I was like, this, 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 and this. And they said, that is interesting. Perhaps we'll talk more soon. Uh, wild. 
Uh, well, uh, Peter, everybody can read your story uh, right now if they haven't already uh, at Wired.com slash culture. Is that the best place? It is on it? the culture vertical, uh, but you can't do Wired.com slash culture. Unfortunately, you have to go to Wired.com slash category, category slash, slash culture. culture. Or just Google PlayStation and Wired, and my guess is you'll find the piece. <laughs> R-U-B-I-N. Oh, yeah, and that throw that in there, too. Throw That'll that make it too. easier. Um, all right, well, let's take a quick break. Uh, and then when we come back, we will have Lauren and myself in conversation with Nathan Proctor, the national director of the Right to Repair campaign for U.S. PERG. If you buy something and you own it, you would think that means you would have the option to repair it yourself, whether that's a smartphone you use for your office job or a tractor you use on your farm, or both. But some companies have implemented software or parts that make it almost impossible for consumers to repair their own items or to seek repair services outside of authorized shops. So some states in the U.S. have begun to explore right-to-repair laws, which would require manufacturers to provide the necessary means and tools for people to repair their own products. But why has this become such a contentious issue? And why now? And what do the major tech companies like Apple and Microsoft have to say about this? And what does the auto industry have to do with this? Joining us to answer these questions today is Nathan Proctor. Now, Nathan has a dog in this fight. He leads the U.S. Public Interest Research Group's Right to Repair campaign, and he's been working to pass legislation in this particular topic area. Nathan, thanks for joining us. It's good to be here. Um, I'd like to give our listeners sort of a broad understanding of what exactly the Right to Repair campaign advocates for. Uh, can you just give us a quick rundown of, of what it is and what you do? So the goal of Right to Repair is to give people what they need to fix their stuff. I mean, if you've ever thought they don't make things like they used to, you know you're on to something. In fact, Almost all the products in our lives have a much shorter lifespan than they used to, and the companies that make them are actively working to create you know, artificial barriers to the maintenance of those things, from cell phones to tractors to appliances. I mean, we're living in an increasingly disposable world. And does this apply to all products that we could potentially buy, or are these products that have some type of digital element because they exist in the modern age? Yeah, it's an excellent question. So the way that modern uh, electronics are made has created a whole new set of opportunities for the companies that manufacture those products to create barriers to repair. So it, it's true that if you have an older car, right, I mean, even back in the day on one of these uh, radio shows that I did, somebody called in to say that they had, you know, a Chevy Camaro back in the 1970s, and they had a, they had to get a special screwdriver to change the spark plugs because for whatever reason, that Chevrolet decided to make a special screwdriver necess that you know you would need to basically go to them to open up to do basic maintenance on your car, and that still happens with I mean the iPhone has a unique screwdriver, the Penelope screwdriver, but now it happens with, you know, because there's software involved, they, there's a lot more opportunities for them, for the companies that make our stuff, to block us from having access to the basic maintenance functions. 
Uh, so just to get an illustration of exactly what kind of barriers people are, are looking at, let's walk through a quick scenario. So I buy an iPhone and then a year later, I notice that the battery isn't really working as well as it used to. Maybe it doesn't hold a charge and I want to replace that battery. So what are my options? Well, you can take that device back to the original manufacturer or one of their authorized agents and they can replace it with the factory authorized battery at their discretion. So a lot of people have that experience and they take their phone to you know, the manufacturer Apple store or to one of their authorized dealerships and they're pushed into buying a new phone. And now, or they might charge you some price which seems you know, pretty exorbitant for just switching out a battery, which used to be something that, you know, was pretty easy to do with most of our electronics and other products. Um, and you could also take that phone to a third party, or you could try to fix the battery yourself. But unfortunately, you would have to, if you did take it to a third party or you tried to do it yourself, you would not have access to the original manufacturer parts you would not have the official manufacturer uh, instructions, the, the schematics or manuals to that repair. And luckily, you know, people have crowdsourced a lot of the iPhone repairs because, I mean, iPhones are like a third of the cell phone market. And there's only like five or six iPhones that make up that big chunk of the market. Whereas if you look at the Android market fragmentation, we're talking about more than 5,000 different Android phones. And each one of those is probably not going to have an individual repair guide for how to replace the battery if it goes out. I mean, the maybe the larger uh, phones like the Samsung Galaxies will have instructions, but for some of them, you're basically trying to figure out how to replace the battery on your own, and the, as a result, you're much more likely to either pay a overpay for the manufacturer repair or get rid of that phone and get a new one. And Americans throw out 416,000 cell phones every day. Right, which is great for the environment, uh, <laughs> of course. Uh, so at one point, I broke two iPhones in a year, and I ended up using, I used iCraft, and I used iFixit. And iFixit, and, and uh, I believe that you know Kyle Weens well, Nathan, uh, who runs iFixit, that was pretty straightforward. Like they sent me the repair kit, I had the instruction manual, and I was actually able to fix the cracked screen on my phone. I cracked at a different model, if I remember correctly, where they would actually come to you wherever you were, it could have been on your lunch break at your office, and they would fix it for you. Um, and now iCracked, I believe, is part, They, I think they were acquired by uh, Square, Square Trade, and now they're a part of, um, an insurance company. But uh, yeah, so it's, it's all like becoming a little bit convoluted. But I remember thinking, especially because of the home button that had the touch ID sensor in it, thinking, okay, I, I definitely um, don't know how to fix this in a way that like I could break this, like I could render this useless. And also, I was pretty certain I was voiding any warranty I might have had at that point the moment I cracked it open myself. But it was relatively easy, easy to do. And I remember thinking like, this should just be easier for people to do. I shouldn't have to go to an Apple store to deal with this and pay an exorbitant fee just to get the screen fixed. It's not like a cracked screen is a unique problem that manufacturers haven't anticipated, right? I mean, everyone who has a phone at some point has cracked the screen. This should be something that is built into what it means to own the device. And you're right. And, and I will also point out that you did not void your warranty. Uh, there's actually a provision in the Magnuson Moss Warranty Act, which is the 
federal law that governs warranties, which says that you have a right to self-repair, that manufacturers cannot condition your warranty against that. And in fact, uh, last April, the FTC sent a bunch of warning letters to Sony, Nintendo, Asus, and some other companies uh, telling them that their void warranty if removed stickers that were putting over the, you know, the screws to open up a device were more or less illegal and in a violation of the consumer right to fix their own thing. So they really have gotten it into the collective uh, mind space of Americans that, you know, they own the inside of your product and, and anything you do uh, to open it or to have access to it is somehow encroaching on their uh, property, their intellectual property, and, and, and it's too difficult or scary for a normal person to do it. And your experience is pretty typical, right? If you have proper instructions, if you've got the right parts, you know, it's not that difficult. It should be more straightforward. It was actually kind of fun. <laughs> it really was. You know, and there's this whole movement of um, repair cafes. I don't know if you've seen these, but they have these pop-up community events where uh, repair technicians will set up tables and people come in with broken stuff of all kinds, you know, from picture frames to lamps to cell phones, and they sit down with somebody with some skills and they fix stuff together for free. And these are becoming really popular around the country. And, and there, there's a, a nonprofit um, which operates out of California called the Fix-It Clinic. And there's another called Repair Cafe. And, and there's locations all over America. So we've talked about cell phones. And what other category of consumer product good is uh, particularly also difficult for people to fix themselves? And maybe to provide some, some bit of balance here, uh, what product categories are particularly easy for people to fix themselves. One product which has extraordinary barriers to repair to the point where it's become a leading case on the consumer side, why we need access to the parts and service information that Right to Repair is asking for are tractors. And in fact, John Deere has software on the tractor which more or less locks this the device um, if it detects you know, a whole range of things. If you open this, the, you know, the uh, instrument panel uh, that has some of the electronic components in it, it basically will lock you out of operating the tractor until so somebody plugs in John Deere software. If you try to install a new sensor, I mean, these tractors have dozens and dozens of sensors all over them. If you change any one of those sensors, John Deere's proprietary dealership software needs to come in and handshake that new sensor Otherwise, the, it will not operate. Um, and that is a huge hassle for people who are just trying to earn a living on a farm. And this is why um, you know, Elizabeth Warren has announced she supports Right to Repair for ag equipment specifically because of some of these issues that farmers see just trying to fix their John Deere tractors. Um, another category of equipment which is actually really important to me and my right to repair work um, is medical equipment. You don't think about, um, you know, just how much of our experience in modern medicine has to do with the, the technology that they use. And the companies that manufacture medical equipment have a lot of ways to, to block repair. So I got a, a technician tell me, like, they switch out these parts, these cons basically consumable parts uh, in a CAT scan and um, they, can, they can do it for a lot less expensive than the manufacturer can do it, like tens of thousands of dollars cheaper per repair. And, but the manufacturer needs to come in and punch in 
like the code to okay the you know installation of this new part and if without the manufacturer's codes the device will not operate and uh, you know and if uh, and and so we are talking about just these technological gateways that manufacturers control about who can do the repairs and and who is authorized to do the repairs and meanwhile this is adding you know billions of dollars in costs to our healthcare without any uh, advantage, without any better health outcomes. The FDA looked at a huge study of 2.1 million medical um, device records, and they found that there was, you know, 0.0-something percent of any of them that had, had to do with, uh, you know, faulty repair in any way. Uh, none of them affected patient outcomes, and half of them were the fault of the manufacturers themselves. So the FDA ruled that basically there's no cause at all for the FDA to, to block independent repair, but this is the this is the state of play that we're in right now. And the other thing that we see uh, is that appliances are now starting to get more and more, um, you know, computerized components and, and software that runs on them, and the manufacturers are not letting uh, you know independent technicians have access to those things. So I had a uh, a colleague in Massachusetts who you know, rents an apartment, which, you know, he had a refrigerator, the refrigerator wasn't working. He called his, you know, normal repair technician to come out who said, I can fix the problem, but, you know, the manufacturer still needs to come and punch in the, you know, reset code. They won't let me have that code. So even though I can fix the fridge, you know, they're still going to charge you for the visit to come out just because it's I mean, again, just because I don't have access to these standard diagnostic uh, tools, which let me reset the device and, and let it work again. Mm -hmm. Right, because there's now a software layer or an operating system that exists on what used to be so-called dumb devices, you know, not connected devices. Um, playing devil's advocate here for a moment, though, as many as there are well-meaning repair and reseller shops, uh, there are also some pretty bad ones. And, you know, someone could argue that controlling the software experience means that a company is also controlling things like security on the device, right? They could be locking it down for good reason rather than having all of your IoT devices in your home be vulnerable to bad actors. Um, is there any downside that you you see or acknowledge to having a totally open repair market? So what you're describing is what I think the core argument of my opposition. When I show up to legislatures all over the country, this is what they argue. Yes, we have a total monopoly of repair, but it's a benevolent monopoly. We control choices for you on your behalf to your benefit. You should just trust that we have your interests at heart. Um, so yeah, so I, to me there's a fundamental problem with Apple making decisions about how I use my property to the benefit of their shareholders. It's very similar to what we see when it comes to mechanics. You would take your car to the dealership for certain kinds of repairs if you felt like you didn't know of another technician or another mechanic that you would trust with that job. But for almost all the other things that you would take a, your car to a mechanic for, you probably have a mechanic who you have a relationship with, who you trust, who you know is um, going to give you a good quality job at a good price. And maybe you know, there might be certain things, again, that you might take to the dealership, but that is your choice as the consumer. And then when it comes to cybersecurity, I just 
don't see how this could possibly be anything but helpful towards cybersecurity. The reason why all these devices are hacked and are cybersecurity nightmares is because they're designed and deployed with obvious and fatal security flaws. It's not because somebody is fixing them and then installing malware. Um, we know that most, you know, there's a lot of devices that we have in the world that we already comply with what we're asking for with right to repair. I mean, uh, my laptop, for example, made by Dell, it, it gives me all the diagnostic software. There's a full manual for the device. Um, they'll sell me any of the replacement parts that I want. Is there some big security problem with Dell computers because other people besides Dell are fixing them? If there is, you know, we've never seen it. Um, you've argued quite recently, um, especially in an op-ed that you wrote for Wired, uh, that corporations are co-opting the messaging of the right to repair movement. Can you tell us a little bit about what that means? Yeah. And so this is something that I've learned in my years of, you know, working on social change campaigns of all kinds, right? That first your opposition ignores you and then they fight you. Uh, but then before they lose to you, they start to co-opt your message. And, you know, for the environmental stuff, you might think of this as greenwashing, where they see what you're saying. Oh, you know, you want repairable products. We'll talk about a little bit of repairability or we'll give you a little bit of what you're asking for in such a way that still maintains our total monopoly, but gives you 10% of what you're asking for. Um, but also they'll use our language and they'll use our messaging. You know, they'll say, you know, repair is good for the environment, like Lisa Jackson at the Apple um, launch event in October. She talked about how reusing the same device is better for the environment. But at the same time, you know, the organization that she was representing is footing the bill to stop your right to have access to the parts, tools, diagrams and other things needed to repair their products. So it shows that, you know, they understand that our message connects with people and that people want the right to repair their stuff, but they don't actually want to give us control. So they do all they can to use some of the message and that those talking points without giving us what we're really asking for. Can you be more specific when you say they foot the bill or they're doing all they can? What are some specific examples of uh, some of the, you know, the household tech names that we know who you feel are creating this strong opposition? I mean, I would say, you know, so Apple, right? So they ha they are one of the chief um, opponents of rights repair. They've worked extensively to to stop our state efforts. They a couple weeks ago, uh, some leaked documents went to Motherboard that showed that Apple is actually preparing to roll out a whole new set of authorized relationships with with a whole set of other um, small electronics repair shops. So they're doing like fifth, maybe even more than 10%. They're doing a lot of what we're asking. They're giving the original parts. They're giving their manuals. They're giving their diagnostic software to instead of just their very small universe of authorized shops to a larger universe of authorized shops, which is pretty good for consumers, but they're not doing it 
to everybody. They're not going to let you do it as the individual. They're not going to let you hire whoever you want. They're still going to control the market, um, but they're relaxing their rules a little bit. And I would say, yeah, this, this is in part, they're reacting to our pressure without giving us what we're really asking for. Another example would be how last year, John Deere and some of the other uh, agricultural uh, product industry folk, the dealerships and the manufacturers of farm equipment, created this uh, agreement, voluntary agreement between themselves, right? So just between the manufacturers and their own dealerships uh, called Right to Repair Solutions. And it was like this great thing for farmers that was going to, you know, make, make sure that the right to repair thing was unnecessary from here on out. But it was just an attempt to co-opt the right to repair message, to give a sliver of what we were asking for that did not give farmers actual control over their own property, but do it in such a way that would try to undercut the lobbying efforts that we had to force them to give us you know, the parts, tools, software, um, and manuals we need to fix the stuff. What is the current state of the legislation in the U.S. around right to repair? How many states have adopted it, and um, how far do you think that uh, you know it could it could still go? So right now, no state has adopted right to repair for all digital electronics, which is what we're pushing for. Um, we have a right to repair for cars, uh, thanks to a Massachusetts law which voters passed in 2012 with an overwhelming like 87 to 13 uh, vote uh, to, to, to support right, right to repair for their automobiles. Um, and, you know, this has been an uphill battle for us to expand that right to other kinds of electronics from tractors to cell phones and appliances. Right now, we have bills all over the country. There's a bill in California, which is, should be up for a hearing by the end of this month. Um, there's a hearing in Oregon on... Uh, next week. Uh, we are expecting a vote in the state of Minnesota on the House floor. Uh, uh, you, let's see, when is that going to be? We're saying by the end of the month, but it will probably be, you know, in the next 10 days. And so there's a lot going on. There's a bunch of other states that are still considering the legislation, but haven't kind of hit that part of their calendar when they're, when we expect a lot of action. But you know, everyone who's listening to this should get connected to the efforts that are going on in their state if this is something that you care about. The states still are a place where, you know, your voice matters and we can make a difference on policy that matters to us. Uh, what is the repair environment like in Europe and Asia? Sure. So there is an active right to repair campaign in Europe, um, which is something that we've been working with. Uh, restart project and some other partners um, to kind of help foment. Um, so they were able to get the European Parliament to recommend a set of new rules that would force certain kinds of repairability uh, into eco design, the eco design principles they're called. Um, and so that they had a, a set of rulemakings that happened specifically around uh, refrigerators this last year. Um, it was kind of a first step for them. Uh, there's there's a lot of interest all over the world. I know that in Australia right now, there's a growing interest uh, in, in right to repair. In Canada, there's a number of bills that are now being uh, considered by Canadian um, lawmaking bodies. And, you know, every day it feels like there's a new 
group reaching out to us and asking like how they can bring rights repair to, to their neck of the woods. Nathan, why do you think that this has become such a hot button issue right now? I mean, I certainly have some ideas around that, which is that there's just this proliferation of devices in our lives that maybe wasn't that didn't exist in the same way 10 years ago or prior to that. And also there's a lot of scrutiny right now on some of the big tech companies. And so I do wonder if it's a combination of all of these things that are bringing this to the forefront. But why do you think this is such a big issue at this moment in time? That's a interesting question, which I actually have multiple answers for. I think that there's a couple factors that when I look at them, I think these are big things. These are big factors. One would be battery gate or throttle gate. So last year, when it was discovered that Apple was throttling the processor on phones when it detected they had an older battery, but wasn't warning the consumer that their phone needed a very simple repair, the replacement of a worn down battery with a, you know, battery with you know, more capacity. And as soon as they did announce it, they had like months long waiting lists for all their battery swaps. Um, And there's like thousands of other technicians that could have helped replace the batteries in those phones. But Apple didn't doesn't let third parties have access to their original Apple batteries. So they just couldn't do the job. Uh, I think that the experience of having a company reach into your phone and slow it down you know, to, to do you a favor uh, really doesn't sit well with people. And then I think it also, people really weren't fixing batteries and phones for a while. They forgot how to do that. We, for some reason, they'd gotten away with forcing us to buy a new phone when our battery went dead. And I think that that changing has really, you know, changed the people's psychology about what it means to fix a phone. That, and I don't think that the phones have gotten all that much better in a couple years. So my iPhone 6, I see no reason why I need to upgrade to a newer iPhone. I th- they don't do anything that I want. I don't need a facial recognition. I, I, I don't need a to lose my headphone jack. I like those things. So um, I, so I think that there's kind of a, uh, specifically to cell phones, I think, you know, they haven't forced people to upgrade and there's no reason for them to upgrade. Uh, and then in terms of all these other appliances, it is the kind of invasion of electronics into all of our products. I mean, listening to someone talk about repairability for appliances like a refrigerator, uh, it's clear that, you know, the software and the and the uh, electron, the computerized components um, are the reason why they're failing so much faster. So our things are breaking more. It's because of the electronics, but they won't let us fix the electronics. All of us have a cell phone in our pocket. All of us have had this experience. It's not just, you know, kind of a niche issue for some farmers, but it's kind of a shared experience of a lot of people. Well, Nathan, uh, thank you for talking to us today. And we appreciate that you are fighting for the users. Uh, You're doing doing noble work. So uh, thanks for coming on the show. It's great to be here. Thank you. be a right to repair those samsung review units we should notice we should note <laughs> that um we did interview nathan before the samsung galaxy fold debacle uh pr disaster so that is why um we didn't talk about it during the interview you just heard 
However, I'm sure when we have him back on the show at some point, we'll talk about whether or not people are going to be able to fix those things. Anyway, let's do some recommendations. Yeah. Peter? Ooh, recommendations. <laughs> uh, Peter, you go first. Well, first I have to ask if anyone has tried my uh, super dense 365 food granola bar slash whole food brand peanut butter combo that I recommended last time. Let's pause for a moment so the listeners have a chance to respond to that question. Great to hear. <laughs> I am so glad. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope that you are not allergic to peanut butter. Uh and I would be curious if you tried the optional third variable of the recipe that I suggested on that podcast and how you enjoyed that. Uh, at any rate, um, there are a lot of Netflix shows I have been watching and enjoying, but they aren't going to be out for a couple weeks. So I'm going to hold off on talking about those. Uh, assuming you'll have me back at some time, I will just keep sleeping in front of the studio until you let me back in. Uh, so instead, I would like to talk about the New York Times decision to start publishing a daily set puzzle. Now, do, are either of you familiar with the card game set? No. No. Okay, it is, uh, it is an incredible kind of shape pattern recognition game where you lay out a matrix of cards and you're, you play with one other person or two other people and you sit around and you have, there are, there are three colors, red, green, and purple. There are three possible numbers. You can have one shape, two shape, or three shapes. And there are three possible shadings. It can be empty, it can be solid, or it can be kind of cross-hatched. And in order for it to be a set, for each of those variables, all three have to be the same, or all three have to be different. So you can have three green, three single green squiggles, and then they'll all have different Hatching. It's very difficult to describe, but once you see it in front of you, I think you can I see think it. I think I have seen this. It's kind before. of like an IQ test come to life in a way. Oh boy. Uh, Explaining this is kind of like an IQ test. <laughs> Understanding the explanation <laughs> is kind of like an IQ test. I think we're all failing. So at any rate, at any rate, uh, if you have played this game before, you probably love it just because like once your brain clicks, it's incredibly fun. Now uh, the New York Times obviously has a daily crossword puzzle, and over time they have developed and released these other daily puzzle forms or something called Spelling Bee. Um, there's another one called, some, I don't remember what it's called, but every day now they also have a set puzzle in which uh, there are kind of four rounds. Two are basic and two are advanced. And in the basic ones, you have to find the four sets in the arrangement that they give you. And in the advanced one, you have to find the six sets in the larger arrangement of cards they give you. But it's free and it's there every day. And it's like, oh, uh, are you, having a cup of coffee in the afternoon and you don't want to go back to work quite yet, take five minutes, 10 minutes and play the daily set. It is the greatest. That's amazing. And do you have to subscribe to the New York Times in order to get the set games? That is a good question. You don't have to subscribe to the separate crossword subscription. Okay. Uh, oh. uh, though I do that as well. If yeah. That gives you a little insight into the level of puzzle nerd that you're talking to. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I believe that if you just have a core New York Times subscription that you get access to that. It's a great app. little bonus. Great little bonus. That's awesome. That's a that's a great recommendation. I'm going to actually And if you've never played, totally play the game. It's 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 a workout that you don't do in like we work mm. with words, right? Mm -hmm. But like it's purely visual and you just unplug from the verbal part of your brain and just exercise a little different part. It's great. Sounds amazing. It really is amazing. Ariel, what is your recommendation this week? Um, I would like to recommend a pair of shoes 
which I wrote about this week and which I am wearing on my feet oh, right now. And which I keep meaning to compliment you on. Oh, interesting. So these shoes are um, they're a brand new pair of sneakers made by Everlane. Everlane, if you're not familiar, is a sort of fashion startup that became very popular for making clothes ethically and sustainably and with radically transparent pricing. Um, Whenever I see a line of people, yeah. it's always for Everlane. I really like their stuff. Um, I think I'm kind of their key demographic, mm-hmm. for better or for worse. Um, but they're also doing really interesting stuff in the sort of sustainability space, which is to say they've they've sort of challenged the way that people traditionally make denim. They've challenged the way people traditionally make silk. Um, and with this sneakers, which is their first ever sneaker, they're they're challenging the fact that sneakers are primarily made of all kinds of plastics, like. There are a million different acronyms you could use, but like basically every every sneaker is made of tons and tons of plastic. Mm. Um, Everlane made this commitment last year to remove all virgin plastic from their supply chain by 2021. So in making a sneaker, they had to figure out like how do you do that with recycled materials or sustainable materials? And they've made this one out of recycled plastic, recycled and natural rubber, and then a little bit of leather around the edge. And um, they're really nice. They are insanely comfortable. Um, I've been wearing them this week because I have developed tendinitis in my foot uh, and my foot is in a lot of pain and these are just so structured and so sturdy that it's actually the most comfortable shoe I own right now. I, I went to the podiatrist today and he was like, these shoes are great. So I saw I saw you wearing them on Monday and yeah. I was across the room so I didn't get a good look at them. I thought you were wearing kind of monochromatic like tone on tone uh, Air Max 90s. That's yeah. what I thought they were, and they, except they've got and and just as a sneaker person, they've got a little bit in common with that. They've got a little bit in common with the um, uh, the Adidas. Um, uh, uh, what's the name of the town that the Kardashians live in? Calabasas. Calabasas. The Adidas Calabasas. <laughs> uh, they they like. They also, do, also Ray Donovan. Uh, they've got a little bit, like a little bit of that kind of dad shoe thing that's in vogue right yeah. now. Like it's a lot of on-trend sneaker stuff all mashed together in not in a gross way. Like, it's a it's a good-looking shoe. I think that's a really nice compliment, especially coming from you, Peter, because you are a sneaker person and you are a fashionable person. You have dope shoes on today. They have more those? acronyms. These are, uh, so these are the Air Tech 312. So Don C, uh, who is like a close confidant <laughs> oh of Kanye, uh, designed this line of, sn- of sneakers for Nike's Jordan brand that basically mashes together parts of different iconic sneakers together. So this has a little bit of the elephant print from the Air Jordan 3, and then it's got um, a lot of the elements of the, uh, I think the Air Challenge, the one that Woody Harrelson wore in all in White Man Can't Jump, Billy Hoyle shoes, that's why I love them. Just it's that shoe basically with a little bit of Air Jordan mixed in, but they are not good for the environment. Mm, see, you win I this win. round. I win. So what is it? Is it like vegan? Is it recycled rubber? Is so it... they're they're not vegan. They are made of leather, um, mm. which I think is like an interesting decision mm-hmm. on Everlane's part. They justify that by saying like they wanted to do something that felt a little more dressed up, and they have decided that leather was the way they wanted to go and to sort of offset some of the environmental impacts of leather. They've done this carbon offsetting program where they're working with some farms in the American Midwest to help improve their grazing practices to sort of 
improve the impact that cattle has on the environment. If you're a vegan, that's not going to fly, obviously. Um, but I do think that Everlane will continue to produce more sneakers in the future. And it is very likely that they'll produce one that's maybe a little more dressed down, a little more sporty. And that one will probably be made of something else. Sure. It just seems like it occupies a really nice middle ground. You've got like Tom's at one end and mm-hmm. then Adidas has this newly announced platform where you get this shoe and then you return it and then they basically recycle it into an all new shoe with mm-hmm. zero material lost. But that's a big gap for mm-hmm. wearing a sneaker that's kind of uh, environmentally sustainable and decent looking and comfortable. And it's like, that's a tough, it's a tough thing to hit. Totally. And also I would imagine with a program that's... <laughs> asking you to recycle your beaten down shoes. Like those shoes are probably not super durable. Um, and in fact, a lot of shoes made of recycled materials are not super durable. A lot of vegan shoes fall apart. And yeah, a lot like of vegan shoes, Toms sooner. are not very durable. Just like vegans actually. Hey-o. Um These, I mean, I just started wearing them so I can't speak to their durability personally, but they were designed to last a very long time, which is why they use rubber, um, which is not a common material in shoes because it's quite heavy, but it is like, very, very long lasting. Um, so the idea with this shoe is that like, it will never go out of style. It will never degrade. You'll never have to take it off your foot. Yeah, it's not flashy enough to go out of style. Like that's the thing that I dig about it is that mm. it had like the things that it takes from kind of sneaker culture are all uh, like really lasting visual elements. Yeah. Basic stuff. Nice praise. Yeah, the late 80s are never gonna go out of style. I do feel like a grandma wearing them, but like a cool grandma. Like a cool grandma, like somebody born in the 80s. Uh, yeah, if you were born in the 80s, you must be a grandma by now, right? <laughs> and if you were born in the 70s, forget it. You yeah, would be forget dead. it. You would be dead. <laughs> I'm coming to you from beyond. Speaking of people born in the 70s, uh, Mike, what's your recommendation? Uh, yes, thank you. Um, <laughs> uh, my recommendation is in the spirit of uh, the show this week because I'm um, going to recommend something that is for the person who likes to fix their electronic gadgets. Uh, it is a kit. It's the iFixit Pro Tech Toolkit. Uh, iFixit is a company that offers instructions and supplies for fixing things like smartphones, headphones, and laptops, and Mac minis, etc. Uh, they sell many different kits, and I should also disclose that uh, the person who runs the company, Kyle, one of the people who runs the company, Kyle Weens, he writes for Wired occasionally. He's, he's a contributor, an occasional contributor to Wired. However, uh, it's also a good company, and they sell good stuff. I got this tech tool kit about a year ago, and I use it all the time. It's $60, and it has, the, the heart of it is a kit that has like a screwdriver with replaceable bits, and there's, I think, 64 different bits, and it has all of the bits that you would need to take apart, like an iPhone, to take apart a Mac, to take apart whatever. I use it to fix my bike all the time. Um, it has all those weird little star-shaped screw heads and those pentagram ones and the and the, the regular hex keys, like for IKEA furniture. Uh, and then a bunch of different Phillips and flathead screwdrivers and a really nice screwdriver that they all slot into. It also comes with a bunch of plastic tools uh, for like prying a phone apart or like getting the battery out when it's glued in or like separating the screen from the body. Um, A bunch of different plastic tools for that stuff. And then it also has like tweezers and knives and things that you would also need to, um, you know, like scrape and pull and yank and all those things. So. If you're the type of person who likes to tinker, then I recommend this to you. 
if you don't already have it. I actually borrowed yours, Michael, so many times I got one for myself, and I love it. Really? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's cool. Did you get just the just the bit kit, or did you get the whole thing with like the Velcro wrapper and all the spudgers and the weird plastic I got the tools? bit kit because I already had spudgers. Yeah. I had, uh, I think, from a different company, maybe. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah, it was a lucrative market out there for people who want to fix their stuff. Yeah. Who knew? And who love bits. Yes, we all do. Uh, well... Thanks for listening, and you can find all of us on Twitter. Ariel, what's your handle? At Pardesoteric. Peter, what's your handle? At Proven Self. Proven Self. I am at Snackfight, and you can find all of us at Gadget Lab, which is the Twitter feed for this show and for all of the work that we do. And I don't know about you guys, but I stay up every night, and I fall asleep refreshing the mentions on the at Gadget Lab Twitter feed. I thought you were going to say you fall asleep every night listening to yourself on the podcast. That too. I fall asleep every time Mike is on the podcast too. (laughs) Ouch. Just kidding. Ouch.